Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 133. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website on thetutortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. October's prize is a copy of my hearty commendations, the transcribed letters and remembrances of Thomas Cromwell by Caroline Angus. Thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 20th and 21st of November, I'll be chatting to Adrian Dillard about Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Mary Tudor Brandon is Kat Marchant. Kat earned her PhD in early modern literature and culture from the University of Sussex in 2015. She's the creator of the YouTube channel Reading the Past. Every week, she researches, writes, films, edits, and uploads and promotes historical education content to the channel. The channel explores, among other things, biographies, particularly relating to women's history, significant moments in our past, and material and textual history. When not in lockdown, Katrina is a freelance Globe education lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe. In this role, she writes and delivers lectures, workshops, and tours for visiting higher education students. She's also an educator and live costumed historic interpreter at various historic sites for past pleasures. Her interpretation work takes the form of first-person performance, both scripted and improvised, as various individuals from the span of British history. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. (laughs) 
welcome to Talking Tutors, Kat. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm very excited about our chat today. So let's just start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Um, hello, everybody. So my name is Kat and I hold a doctorate in early modern literature and culture, which I obtained in 2015. My doctoral thesis was titled Things Necessary and Unnecessary, Trash and Trifles in Early Modern England. So I did write 100,000 words on pretty much trash which is which is good for my ego after my doctorate I worked as a freelance heritage educator and a costumed interpreter so I've lectured at Shakespeare's Globe I've worked at um, historical palaces so Hampton Court the Tower of London etc and I also run the YouTube channel reading the past and that's me <laughs> yes what a fantastic background love it and love your YouTube channel by the way it's fantastic oh, <laughs> So we're going to talk today a little bit about Mary Tudor, so Henry VIII's sister, just to uh, differentiate. So can you tell us just a little bit about Mary's family, her early life, maybe something about her upbringing? Certainly. I mean, unfortunately, we, we don't know as much about most of Mary's life as I think we'd all like. We believe that she's born in the early months of 1496. The date of the 18th of March is frequently given. She's the youngest surviving child of Henry VII and his wife, Elizabeth of York. Unfortunately, there's a, there's a fair bit of loss in her early life. It, it's unclear how much that would have affected her, though. Obviously, we know that her eldest brother, Arthur, was supposed to be the heir, but he dies at 15, and that's in, in 1502. So she's of an age where she could have known him, but what I will say is that, of course, he and his wife, Catherine of Aragon, had taken up residence in the in the Welsh principalities bit in Ludlow, which is in the Welsh marches, in 1501. So I question how much Mary remembers her brother who's being raised for kingship and is considerably older than her. The loss is then compounded because her mother, Elizabeth of York, uh, gives birth to a little girl in the Tower of London the following year, on the 11th of February, 1503. So she passed away on the 11th of February, having given birth a few days previously. And additionally, the baby girl she gave birth to also died. Then Mary loses, in quotes, her elder sister, Margaret, not to a fatality, fortunately, in this case, but in 1503 in July. So just months after she'd lost her mother in that in the February, Margaret's off to Scotland to marry James IV of Scots. So now all that remains of the royal children in England is Mary and her elder brother, Henry, who is now the heir. But Henry is being kept close by his father now. And Mary also doesn't have a separate household. So they are both attached to the court. Although they do have attendants, they're part of the royal household. So she and her brother, we believe this is where that they get their very close relationship. And despite the spats that they'd have later in life, they, they were very close. It's traditionally said that Mary is Henry's favourite sister. We know that... She has some household accounts that reference her. Uh, she has her own apothecary and a physician. There's details of medications being provided for her fairly frequently, which people often say is evidence that she may not have been in the best of health, even from a very young age. We also know that she has a schoolmaster, but we don't know really what she's taught. We presume, based on what we know of 
the education of elite Tudor ladies that she would have learned Latin and French. She was also surrounded by other elite ladies, not quite as elite as her, obviously, but they no doubt in the space her mother left would have provided her with those feminine and courtly skills that a fashionable young woman who was intended to marry somebody of incredible prestige, probably a crowned monarch, that she would be given those skills. So things like needlework, dancing, music, singing, all of those sorts of things. We have reports that she is beautiful. As a child, she's pretty and charming, and that when she grew up, she was also beautiful and accomplished. People would comment on how attractive she was, and it seems to have been that she had a precocious what we would see, I think, is a precocious talent. When she's 10 years old, her sister-in-law's brother-in-law, which maybe I should unpack that. So her sister-in-law, Catherine Aragon's sister's husband, Philip I of Castile, he comes and he's at Windsor in 1506. So Mary is 10 and we see reports that she is dancing and playing her lute to entertain him. Now, granted, it might have been like when you turn up at a dinner party and uh, your friend's child brings out the recorder, but um, it is said that it was a enjoyable event, so much so that uh, there is a plan to marry Mary to Philip I's son, Charles. And that's, we're sort of then getting up to her not being in the early life there. She's, she's going into the next phase. Fabulous. That was, that was really great. I enjoyed that. And so she does in fact marry a crowned monarch. So let's talk about her first marriage to Louis Twelfth of France. Can you tell us just a little bit about how this came about and maybe anything we know of the ceremony and anything like that? So as I said, the, the original plan wasn't for her to marry Louis. The original plan was for her to marry Charles, who becomes Charles, Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. And that was still the plan when Henry becomes king on the 21st of April, 1509. And of course it makes sense. Henry's marrying, having a Spanish match, marrying Mary to a Spanish match makes loads of sense. It really ties those, bonds those ties together. She, after her father's death, we have reports of Mary starting to send gifts to her future husband. There was another treaty signed where an absolute dead final completion date for marriage, like these two need to be wedded on the way to being bedded. That was set for the 15th of May, 1514, at which point Mary would be around 18 years old, Charles would be 14. And considering what she's a, what she's going to end up with, this is a very good state of affairs. But the Habsburg delays begin to anger or maybe concern her brother. He wants this done and dusted. He wants to secure the bonds and presumably go to war with France because that's his perpetual aim. He's also concerned, I think, that his favourite sister might be jilted after this public thing where she is courting this boy. So when the marriage doesn't happen when it's supposed to, and that's the May, on the 30th of July, so not long after Henry doesn't give them much grace, Mary repudiates the marriage, I assume at Henry's insistence. And almost at once, her hand is reassigned, this time to the 52-year-old French king, Louis XII. Now, there are there are very swift proxy marriages that take place at Greenwich and Paris. And 
then Mary is on the way to France by the October. So from July to October, this has been wrapped up very quickly. There's not going to be any more delays. And presumably Louis can't really afford to wait. We hear that it's a rough crossing, as seems to be the case with so many brides coming from the continent and to the continent. October is a pretty stormy time. One of the ships in her fleet is supposed to have been shipwrecked. So it's really quite dangerous. Mary is thoroughly jostled and seasick and as we know she's not we don't think in the best of health from childhood but she does land in Boulogne on the 3rd of October so mercifully it's a a short crossing and then she is going to make her entry into Abbeville which is in the Somme region and she's going to do that on the 8th so she's got a few days to be a little bit less seasick for their marriage the next day after that on the 9th. For the entry in, the Venetian ambassador describes it as being just an incredibly sumptuous procession. This is the day before the wedding. So Mary comes in under a white canopy on a white palfrey horse and she's dressed in white brocade. So she must have just looked gorgeous. And she is surrounded by a cavalcade of the great and the good. The next day, the wedding day, is even more elaborate. For this, Mary's in cloth of gold, trimmed with ermine she's glittering from the sheer weight of English jewels on her because she is a representative of England and England's crown and the wealth of England so she is this is conspicuous consumption as is traditional she is a virgin bride going to her wedding so her hair is flowing down we know that Tudor ladies have incredibly long hair. Mary is a Tudor, so she has that typical Tudor red hair. She's got a small crown, a coronet on her head, and she must have just looked beautiful walking to this wedding. We would assume that Louis, upon meeting her for this wedding, they had met the day before, but I would, I would think that the people observing would have thought them somewhat the odd couple. This beautiful young woman, not yet 20, and this gouty 52 year old fairly dissipated king but bless him he is dressed in a complimentary fashion he's also in kind of cloth of gold brocade and he's also wearing ermine then the wedding mass is performed and all is well so mary has entered into france she's performed this marriage and it has been done with all of the pomp and opulence and decadence as befitted her as both a sister of an English king and also the Queen of France. There is a small snafu the next day, the 10th, because her new husband, Louis, in his infinite wisdom, decides that uh, his wife's attendants from England are an annoyance, so he dismisses the lot of them. This, we are told, makes Mary feel quite vulnerable. Mary can speak incredibly good French, but she doesn't want to be, as a teenaged queen, left alone with nobody on her side. And I think it's a mark of how much she trusts her brother and how much he can be relied upon that the first thing she does is she writes to him to be like, this is what's just happened, and um, I'm not keen. Louis doesn't recall her retinue, but he is moved to offer an explanation as to why he's done it, to assuage fears of... Mary and offence of Henry and it does seem that that has smoothed what was a brewing conflict as a diplomatic incident waiting to happen. Things move on, she is crowned at Saint-Denis in Paris 
as Queen of France with all the expected pomp and circumstance. There's no uh, recorded or surviving details of what she's wearing, but considering what she's wearing to enter and then marry her king, we can imagine that it's utterly gorgeous. So she marries on the 5th of November, 1514 and she's a happy wife and they set about business of making French heirs. <laughs> Fantastic now I, I, I don't like to fast forward their marriage but I, I'm going to do exactly just that I'm going to fast forward to the 1st of January 1515 where Mary's husband dies. Now I'm sure mm. lots of our listeners have probably heard a variety of reasons for his mm. death. Can you talk to us a little bit about this event that must have just left a lot of people in shock, I imagine. Well, I, I wonder actually how shocked they would have been. Louis was not a well man. This was, the marriage to Mary was a, a last ditch attempt to get an heir to France because he has no surviving son. As it currently stands, when Mary turns up, his heiress is his daughter, Claude, but principally it's his cousin. I'm going to say cousin. There's, there's a, a degree of separation, but I haven't got my chart up to figure out <laughs> what remove they are but Francis is his cousin and he is married to Claude who is Louis's daughter that is the that is the future of the French monarchy unless Louis can get himself a male heir so there is a sort of sense of this being end game I'm sure many people have seen the TV show The Tudors where the character of Margaret who is clearly Mary <laughs> For some reason, she's called Margaret. And for some other reason, she's married the, the aging king of Portugal rather than France. And in that, she smothers him with a pillow. Now, that may have happened, but nobody is accusing Mary of actively murdering him. A fair few people do claim that she is responsible. She does get the blame because they think that the French king's attempt to satisfy his buxom, bonny young bride, exhaust him to such a degree that it killed him. Less purient minds, shall we say, point out that Louis was plagued by apparently very severe, very poorly controlled gout. And although gout isn't fatal, when it's uncontrolled and that kind of buildup of uric acid, it does create a, a cascade of other symptoms that can prove fatal. So we think that gout kills him but I mean it probably wouldn't have helped that he was so desperate to get an heir on Mary and my goodness poor woman <laughs> those must have been some unpleasant ministrations I must say absolutely goodness me all right so how is Mary treated after his death how do the French people treat her and what happens when Francis and his wife Claude accede to the throne well first and foremost they have to make sure that Louis hasn't been successful that he, that he hasn't got an heir on her. So they're going to seclude her away and they're going to seclude her away from men, just to make sure. Also, of course, she, she is supposed to observe a period of mourning. Um, so she is secreted away to be observed and to mourn. There is no baby. Um, so her stepdaughter, Claude, and her Claude's husband, Francis, become the new king of, and queen. There is no indication that she is treated anything other than with the utmost respect because she is valuable. This is a sister of an English king, but also a dowager queen of France. She now has two kings who can take an interest diplomatically and potentially financially in where she is married next. So both Francis and Henry are going to be interested in that. She also has plate and jewels and the income 
from her dower land in France. So she is in a very good personal position. However, she's also young. So there is concern that she may be married off in ways that aren't advantageous. And that's certainly something that Henry is concerned about. I think that Francis would have made her a match that was good for him and maybe even good for her, but probably not good for Henry. So that's really where the concern is, is about this. She's back to being a pawn on the chessboard of matrimonial politics. So it's where she's going to go next. Yes, and I guess Mary had her own ideas about where she was going to go next. So enter the dashing Charles Brandon. So what can you tell us about this interesting um, turn of events? Well, yes. So Charles Brandon had been sent over with Mary at her marriage. He'd loitered about in France until nearly Christmas. And it's suggested that that is because it was thought that Louis was in such poor health that Mary wasn't going to be a long-lived Queen of France, that she was swiftly going to become a dowager Queen of France. So Brandon is there at Henry's insistence, loitering about to protect Mary's interests, principally Henry's interests. But he is recalled in uh, mid-December 1514. And then, of course, 1st of January, Louis dies. And that news reaches England and Brandon is redispatched with a quickness to France to safeguard the king's sister because she is a marital asset that he wants to dispense with. However, Brandon had discussed with Henry that he wanted to marry his sister. And Henry said that he was thinking about it, but he did say to Brandon, now then, when you go to collect my sister, don't you go marrying her. I'm thinking about whether you can marry her and I'm really thinking about it and I'm not going to marry her off to some very useful duke or prince at all. No, no. But Brandon's in France, either in the February or the March, and they do marry in secret. How and why that happens, who convinces whom, in reality, we don't know what's going on there. Why they choose to do it, we don't know. But later, Mary would say that it was all her idea. None of it was Brandon's fault. Brandon, for his part, the absolute paragon of chivalry that he is, would say, I had to marry her, Henry, because she cried at me till she till I would. So essentially, he's like, well, she wept so much, I couldn't say no. That being said, although they marry in secret, it does appear that Brandon did obtain royal support for this hasty marriage. Unfortunately, it wasn't from Henry, but it was from Francis. Well, that's interesting. I had I actually had not heard that. So that's really interesting. Now, I think everyone listening knows how much Henry despised any kind of smidge of disloyalty. So how did he react to this news of Brandon after he told him not to marrying his sister? Well, I think he was livid at, at first for, for a number of reasons. So he, as you said, he doesn't like people going behind his back. It, it's always been my question, how does Brandon survive this? And, and I've, I've racked my brains over it. And there are, there are a few things that I think are going on as to why, why he manages to survive. Mary was always safe. I mean, she might have been, if Henry was really, really angry, he might have got her back, back in England and then sent her off to a nunnery to think about what she'd done. But ultimately, she is an unmarried Tudor princess. She's always going to be forgiven. Brandon could by rights have lost everything, including his life for this, but that doesn't happen. Henry has lost at this time a valuable pawn in the marriage market. Also, his sister and friend 
have completely embarrassed him on the international stage because they've been secretive, they've been deceptive, and they've also gone to his rival, one of his rival kings. That's that's not not a good thing. But as we said, Mary is Henry's favourite. Perhaps that makes him more willing to find a way to forgive her. She does take the blame on herself, perhaps alleviating it off of Brandon. Brandon is his best friend. And what Brandon does to be a survivor, because being a best friend to Henry, as we see throughout his time, <laughs> is can be quite a fatal position to be in. But what I think Brandon does that the others don't is that Brandon's desires are far more base. He's interested in luxury and money and what's in his pants. So I don't think Henry, Henry sees him as being potentially the potentially embarrassing person Henry sees him as making poor choices and certainly at this point early on Henry enjoys it because Brandon's a worse husband than he is so it all looks very good Brandon isn't smart enough I don't think to be trying to wheedle his way into controlling Henry politically Brandon isn't making political deals with other nations behind Henry's back he is a loyal foot soldier he does as he's told so I think that's probably one of the reasons why he survives the reign the other thing of course at this time is that they aren't in Henry's face with this secret marriage they're still in France another thing that helps the helps the situation is that Cardinal Wolsey sees the potential for this to be profitable for him and so he involves himself and intercedes on Brandon's behalf that help later down the line won't be the assistance that Wolsey thinks it might be. They do return to England. They next see Henry on the 3rd of May, 1515, where he chooses to welcome them back. He has been mollified. But I think another reason why that's happened is that they've done something that Henry really likes, and they have basically bought their way into his forgiveness. They hand over Mary's jewels and plate. They hand over half of her dowry. Brandon hands back the wardship of Lady Lyle, who he was betrothed to before he ran off with Mary. There's also £24,000 due to be paid over 12 years from the profits of Mary's French dower lands. So all of this is why it's survivable for Brandon and why Mary is allowed to keep her husband, I think. That's an incredible incident, isn't it? It's just, I can't think of another example of Henry kind of (laughs) forgiving in that matter. Obviously, it suited him. So, yeah, you're quite right. And I think I totally agree with you that I don't think he saw Brandon as any sort of threat to his, you know, his kingship or his masculinity even or anything else. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Okay, so we're around the 5th of May now, 1515. So there is an official wedding ceremony that um, takes place at Greenwich. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, we what we know is that It takes place in front of Henry and Catherine Aragon. They are there. So this is a set piece. This is something, and presumably as well, it's intended that the uh, various ambassadors will see slash hear about it. This is Henry showing the world that all is forgiven, but it's also about resetting the narrative. This is Henry saying that he consents. In fact, he celebrates the marriage. I mean, maybe it was his idea in the first place. Of course, it is a little bit like locking the stable door after the horse has already bolted, isn't it? But it's it's. A, I think the couple in this public marriage happening, if they'd had any 
doubts that Henry might have changed his mind about forgiving them, this would have been where they could breathe that sigh of relief that they are, they're already legally married. That's a given, but this is, this, this is safeguarding them. All right. And so they return, they have this official ceremony, all is good, all is forgiven. So where does the couple choose to reside? Does Mary stay at court or does she live at, in somewhere in the country? So she, they, she doesn't actually spend a lot of time at court. And as time moves on, there are various reasons provided for why that happens. But we principally think it's a combination of running a household having babies and also her increasing ill health. Brandon's not at court very much. Um, he he runs errands for Henry, but he has the title of the Duke of Suffolk. He has estates. They were that was the Delapole lands, and they have various lands in East Anglia that he needs to, they need his attention. So they're there. Mary gives birth to four children. She has two sons who both sadly die young. They were both called Henry, another indication that they're staying in the good graces of her brother. The the first is born in 1516. The second Henry is born in around 1522. So presumably the first Henry has passed away before then. They also have two daughters and they are very interesting. So there's uh, Francis born the 16th of 1517, 16th of July, 1517, and uh, her sister Eleanor, who's born at some point between 1518 and 1521. Frances is perhaps the most interesting going forward because she marries Henry Gray. That union itself produces three daughters, one being Lady or Queen Jane Gray. We see in some fiction, I'm once again returning back to the Tudors, we see that the, that the marriage is portrayed as being not a happy one, that Charles Brandon is frequently adulterous, that the pair have screaming rows. Essentially, the Tudors presents it as a moralising tale of uh, marry and hate, repent at leisure. There's the, the happiness or otherwise of the marriage is, is not something that we know about particularly. The loss of their first son would surely have put it put a strain on any marriage. They have got that financial burden of regaining Henry's favour. They've got that amount to keep paying out over 12 years. But the couple aren't poor. Um, so they're, they're, they could have been richer, no doubt, but they certainly aren't impoverished. Charles is sent by Henry to wage various battles in on French soil, which jeopardises Mary's capacity to claim that dower income, which for 12 years is owed to Henry in large part. Also, as we move on, Mary's distaste for her brother's marital adventures, shall we say, puts Mary at odds with her brother. And I'm sure that her husband would probably have felt that he could have done without his wife making more conflict with an increasingly murderous king. We know that Brandon fathers um, illegitimate children but it's not completely clear if any were fathered during his marriage to Mary or not. So while there are lots of ways that the marriage could have been stressful, it is clearly a marriage that is made by two people. It's not an arranged match. They, they have chosen each other and it, it does last for 18 years. So make of that what you will, I suppose. Yes. And you've also, you've already kind of mentioned the fact that Mary did not really support her brother's bid to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, of course, and that this 
had some effect on their relationship. Do you want to just go into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's 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 really quite sad. I think the the distance that's caused by the whole great matter affair, shall we say? Because although there was the slight spat when Mary marries Brandon, that's a a rift of maybe months. But Mary and Henry were incredibly close. They they loved each other, but this is something that they never recover from. She cannot get on board with him trying to annul his marriage to Catherine. And by this point, and also before, Henry is not somebody who can deal with being contradicted or challenged. So this is never going to end well. This is immovable objects, irrepressible force hitting each other. She absents herself from court, apparently in protest. There's that big uh, event where Anne and Henry travel to Calais in 1532 to try and win France's support for their union. And of course, this is Mary is the Dowager Queen of France. It would have been a great set piece if she had been able to be there or been cajoled into being there in order to um, say show that she had that they had her support. She doesn't go. And it's some say she doesn't go out of protest, but she isn't well. I, I think that even if she had fully supported her brother leaving her sister-in-law for somebody who had actually served her in France, I don't think she could have gone anyway. She's really, she's really quite sick by now. And I I wonder how much Henry is is aware of that. As we know, illness and sickness is a complete anathema to him. So yeah, it's it's really sad. It puts a real wedge between the relationship. Yeah, and the other big event, of course, that she misses is Anne's coronet, Anne Boleyn's coronation. But of course, mm. she is, as you've said, extremely unwell at that point. So do you think that the antipathy towards Anne Boleyn has been played up a bit, or do you feel that that is uh, that that the evidence is that she actually didn't like Anne for whatever reason? Well, I mean, there are reports that the two women traded insults in public. So there there was apparently some public row that took place. Does that mean that uh, she hated her? No. Um, She knew her from France. She also, of course, then knew her from court because as well as serving Mary, Anne had also served Catherine Aragon. So these women were in each other's circles. There's before this whole thing starts kicking off, there's no report that the two of them fall out majorly. We have that Shrove Tuesday mask of Chateau there, where Anne and Mary are, are both in it, as is Mary Boleyn. Mary is takes the lovely role of beauty. Anne is perseverance. <laughs> so they they have lived, danced attended court altogether, but there does seem to be some spats between them. Some suggest that as Anne moves up the ranks, Mary is concerned because Anne may have had insider information about her relationship with Brandon and how it was formed in France that Mary didn't want to get out. That is a conspiracy theory. (laughs) It's, It's entirely possible that it's true. But I think principally, Mary was a little girl when Catherine of Aragon first came into her life as Arthur's wife. She then became Henry's wife. She had always been there. She was she had turned up in Mary's life just before she lost her mother, just before her elder sister went off to marry the King of Scots. Catherine is Mary's sister and she has been for decades 
So I think that there's, it's not, it may not necessarily be anything about Anne. I think it may be more about Mary's feelings towards Catherine. Also, Mary may well have felt that Henry had duties as a king. Now, while she's married somebody in-house, so to speak, she probably doesn't think that Henry should be doing that. She probably thinks that if you're going to remarry and you need to get a son, marry a foreign princess. Do your duty, make an allegiance, an alliance. So, and on top of that, Anne, although she is nobly and gently born, she she is somebody who served both Mary and Catherine Aragon. How does Mary, Dowager Queen of France, feel that she has to curtsy to the woman who had served her in France? In short, it's, it's no surprise to me that Mary backs Catherine of Aragon. And I think there's a variety of, of possible reasons for it. Yeah, no, I think you've made some really good points. And I think it definitely is more about her loyalty to Catherine, who, as you say, came in as a sort of a little bit like a mother figure at that crucial time. So yeah. All right. Well, tell us a little bit just about Mary's final months now and her death in 1533. Yeah. Again, uh, very sadly, this is this is also something that's somewhat obscured. So she's, and I think that's principally because she's away from the visibility, the light of court. And, and that may be because she's sulking. But as I said, it may be because she's she's too sick to attend. We've got these constant hints that she has had poor health, that she struggled with her health from childhood. However, her final illness is thought to have been what they call consumption, which we think is is TB. She dies in Suffolk on the 25th of June, 1533, and she's interred at Bury St Edmunds Abbey. What's to me really, really tragic is that Mary and Henry, there's no evidence they ever make amends before her death. And we don't have any surviving documents that Henry writes anything about his feelings about his sister's death. And perhaps that's because he is still incandescent that she wouldn't get on board with his desires to remarry. Perhaps it's a very rare emotion for Henry guilt. Maybe he can't bring himself to write about it. What does happen that I think may be indicative of a mellowing in later life, if not at the time, because we we do know that lots of people, lots of royal people tend to canonise the dead in ways they, they don't and that they mistreat the living. But what does happen is that in Henry's final will, the one that is enacted after his death, he writes out this incredibly detailed succession plan at so many points of remove, which is kind of out of bounds. Like he shouldn't try and have that much control after his death. It's it's a, a sign of his control freakery, I think. But it's it's Mary's descendants that go in after Henry's children. So it's Edward, Mary, Elizabeth, and then the descendants of Mary Tudor, with the offspring of his elder sister, Margaret, explicitly excluded. So however he felt about Mary at her death, however long it takes him to soften to her, or to at least to her children, by the time of his own death, he has done so sufficiently that he puts her children in his will. Additionally, Mary's loving, grief-stricken husband moves on with customary speed for him in case it's not clear I, i'm not a fan of charles brandon so he marries another ward he, he, he this is the second ward he's had who he's got himself engaged to this one is 14 her name is catherine willoughby and he marries her on the 7th of september 1533 so from june to september so that's a it's a whistle stop grief tour there isn't it 
Wow, this has been such an interesting talk, Kat. I've, I feel like I've learned a lot and gained quite a lot of insight. So thank you so much for that. Now, well, there's something that we do at the end of our episodes of Talking Tutors, just to get to know our guests a little bit better. So it's 10 questions. Are you ready for those? I'll give it a good go. Give it a good go, exactly. So what was the last show that you watched or, or maybe even more interestingly that you binge watched? Well, actually, the last show I was going to bring up was I went to go and see Six the Musical. And uh, that's that's my last Tudor show that I watched. And it is fabulous. And I would like to go again. Yes, I've actually heard of people going three, four times to see it. I've only seen it once, but I would go again too. It was so good. All right. What about something you love about where you live? So I am an East Londoner now. I'm a, a transplant to East London and I love in this particular part of London I love there is still a sense of community and I also love that it's such a varied history and and such a, a diverse population f- throughout all of history and and this is the place where I'm not very far from the Bryanton May factory which is where the match women began their industrial action which is thought to be the first successful organized strike by workers and many of the women involved in that then went on to be involved in suffrage and the east london federation of suffragettes so there's a there's a great political protest history here that i also really enjoy Yes, I've actually, have you read the series Call the Midwife or watched the series? I've read the series, but I I watch Call the Midwife and my husband and I have a game we play of how many episodes in this, in this one will I weep uncontrollably? And it's, it's usually about 90%. (laughs) Well, you know what? I weep 100%. I'm always crying in that show. It doesn't matter. Like my kids look at me and think, mom, why do you watch this when you end up just like a red tomato, just bawling? But I love it. And and that's why I love East London too, because of that. So signature recipe, do you do you have something that you like to make? Um, I am I am not a cook. So but I have things that, that I cook one thing. Um, my husband does all of the cooking because I am a disaster but there's one thing I can do and I make uh what I call a pizza pasta bake it's very simple because I can't be trusted and it's a regular pasta bake tomato creamy tomato pasta bake sauce and I chuck in chorizo and black olives and serve it with salad and garlic bread and that's the only yeah. thing that I can be trusted to make that sounds good actually I like the addition of the chorizo yum uh what about the favorite season I I love summer that's that's my favorite season without a shadow of a doubt And what do you do to relax and unwind? I listen to true crime shows, either uh, on podcasts or on YouTube or on TV. I just, I binge watch people talking about true crime. I've never gotten into that. My mum loves it too. She'll just, she reads all those books about serial killers and murderers. And I think, how do you sleep at night? I'd be terrified. (laughs) Uh, so you've obviously you mentioned you've got so much history around you do you have a favorite historic site nearby that you like to visit well I'm I'm not far from the Tower of London and uh, I have been there many times I have had the privilege of working there in costume but still when I go I find things I haven't seen before it's constantly unfolding it's in fact to be honest all of the historic royal palaces locations that I've been to so Hampton Court um, and I've also been to the Banqueting House as well and Kensington I I work there too they all of them have these amazing 
layers of history that are just utterly fabulous and you and you do you find something new every time you go it's that's those are my favorites and is there a new skill that you would like to learn oh that's a good question I would like to learn properly how to take care of plants because I really want to have a green space but I I I just I murder them I've killed cactuses I'm I am terror nobody should if there should be a charity for the protection of plants which comes in and removes plants from me I think at the cases that I'm I'm too attentive I overwater because I'm just so desperate for them to live that I smother them with my love <laughs> I'll remember never to give you a plant then thank you <laughs> Have you got a favourite app or, or maybe even if it's not a favourite app, a favourite website that you go to or use a lot? I have just very recently signed up for TikTok. So I'm, I'm down with the kids and I have started making TikToks and they are really fun. I'm really enjoying being on TikTok and just it's so nice to be able to scroll through something like I usually would scroll through Twitter and with the way the world has been for I don't know the last decade you just doom scroll through Twitter and you don't get that on TikTok this this seems sad but there's a lot of there's a lot of happy people bouncing about and it's quite feel good actually there is there's a lot of fun I joined so that I could watch um Heva Castle was doing some really cool little video so I joined for that basically but it is you're right it is a lot of fun it's a bit different to with other more serious um, <laughs> side of life and are there any fads or trends that you would love to kind of come back into fashion the French hood the Fr- I'm with you I'd love the French hood <laughs> to come back I like hats actually I'd like just you know going out in a hat I'd love that to come that would be so cool See, I I also love a hat, but I I don't have the head for a hat. The only thing that I've ever looked good in is a French hood. So, and a hairband's not the same. No. It needs the veil at the back. So I need, I need. You should just also, start wearing it. That's it. You could bring I, it back. Let's see how it works. Yeah, let's try it out. Also, you get away with not washing your hair quite as much. That's Winner. Exactly right. I love it. Yep. And lucky last, what mystery do you wish that you knew the answer to? There's probably lots, but what's one of the, the kind of main ones? I mean, I've made, I've made a YouTube video about it, but the mystery that I would love to know the answer to is what happened to Amy Rob's heart, Amy Dudley. Mm, um, yes. What happened there? That's a good one. The Tudor period has lots of those. Um, what happened? I wonder what was to be a fly on the wall, hey? Mm-hmm. All right, one last thing, and I promise I'll let you get on with your day, and that is the Tudor takeaway. So I ask all my guests for something, a recommendation that our listeners can go off and explore after the show. So sometimes people have a, a website suggestion or a book to read or a song to listen to. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? So this is a suggestion that I actually heard about in one of the clubhouse rooms that I'm part of, that there is about to be, starting in um, opening next month in October, the British Library is doing an exhibition on Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots, about them as cousins and rival queens. Uh, So I'm very, obviously British Library will have all the documents, so I'm very keen to see what that looks like. And it would be lovely to be back at the British Library in an exhibition. That sounds fantastic. All right, I'll have to go and check that out and I'll add the link to the show notes so that all our listeners can find that. And hopefully they've got a sort of online component so that our um, listeners from overseas can can take part. Normally they do do something like that, which is great. Kat, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking Tudors with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've had a lovely morning. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.